Our text this morning is going to be Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, but I told you last week we need to deal with the last verse of Revelation chapter 1 today, so I want to do that as just a sort of a brief pre-introduction. When Jesus appeared to John, the Lord was standing in chapter 1 between uh, uh, he was standing among seven golden candlesticks or lampstands, and he had seven stars in his right hand. And we're not left to wonder what the meaning of that symbolism is. It's explained by the Lord in verse 20 of chapter 1. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the, churches, are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. So these seven lampstands that the Lord is among are the seven churches, and not just any seven churches, but specifically the seven churches in Asia, or we now call it Asia Minor, essentially uh, where the country of Turkey is today. These churches over which the Apostle John had some significant influence. And what we're going to find is in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the Lord has a message to each one of those seven churches. The seven stars in the right hand of Jesus, he says, are the angels of the seven churches. And now I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to be able to tell you with certainty what these angels are. It could mean angel in the sense of supernatural beings, right? Angels are, in fact, real they are given real tasks by God. So some argue that these are like guardian angels which are set over these individual churches. It's certainly possible. That's the, that would be what the most common meaning of this Greek word angelos is. Angelos technically means messenger. So it's possible that these messengers are the men who were passing messages between the churches and the apostle John. It's also possible the messengers are the ones who stand to read before the church or um, like the lead elder of the churches. Even as the churches in the New Testament each show us signs of multiple elders, multiple pastors, we understand there was very commonly a lead elder, a lead pastor in that church. And so I tend to think the, it makes the most sense in the context to think of these angels as people, not angelic beings, since each message to these churches begins unto the angel of the church of, whichever church it is, right. And so it's hard to hand a literal document to a spiritual being. So I think these angels, these messengers are people. The most important thing to keep in view is each letter to the church, not the messengers to the churches. There's been a lot of different approaches to these letters to the churches through the years, but the most reasonable way to understand them is that they are literal churches with a specific message for each assembly. We saw the introductory messages that if you sort of map out to these churches, each church is located in, in a city that's a, along this arcing roadway, which would be in the order that someone would come and, and deliver these messages. So 
As we read them, we'll see some specific references that apply especially to those specific churches. So for example, in Revelation 3, we'll see the church at Laodicea is told that they need to use some eye salve, which seems like an odd message until you realize that Laodicea in the first century was known for producing this eye medicine, so it would have made great amount of sense to them. So I think it's fair to conclude these messages from Jesus as he's standing among his churches, or especially for each of those individual churches. However, that doesn't change the fact that the message to each of these churches are also messages to us. We get to learn from their experiences. So you can look, for example, in Revelation 2.7, you will see the phrase, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches, plural. Each message to each church has that phrase. So these are letters to these specific churches, but to us by extension, right? They were expected to read each other's mail. And now this morning we get to read their mail and learn from it. So having visited numerous churches in my life, I can assure you that there are churches like the church at Ephesus and like the church at Smyrna and like the church at Thyatira and you know, we could go on down the list. These are real churches being addressed, but they also bear striking similarity to, to other churches throughout history. And so with that being said, I'm going to ask for your attention this morning as we consider the Lord's message to the church at Ephesus in particular. In my estimation, of all the seven churches addressed, Ephesus might be the one that is the most similar to us. And now maybe I'll say the same thing next week and six more times. I don't think so. We can learn from all of them, but Ephesus might be the one that's most reflective of our assembly. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and have patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do thy first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. I would encourage you to remember, as we listen to the Lord's message to this church at Ephesus, that you know this church at Ephesus. You know these people. We've preached through Acts, and we read how in Acts 
chapter 18 and 19, the Apostle Paul brought the gospel to Ephesus. He spent three years in Ephesus renting out that lecture hall and and teaching and preaching daily so that the gospel would spread to these other cities in Asia Minor that are about to be addressed. The city of Ephesus was entirely taken with idolatry. It was in Ephesus where there was the the silversmith guild led by a man named Demetrius, which started a riot in hopes of murdering the apostle Paul. Right? They were losing money as people believed in Jesus. They trusted the gospel. They stopped buying the little models of uh, the statues and temples for the goddess Diana. And for, for hours, the entire city of Ephesus was gathered in a riot, shouting, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. It's in Ephesus that Apollos came and taught from the Old Testament. And that couple, Aquila and Priscilla, brought Apollos into their home and taught him about Jesus. On his final trip to Jerusalem, Paul stopped by a nearby port and called for the elders, the pastors of the church at Ephesus, and and they met with a tearful goodbye. He later wrote them a letter, the book of Ephesians, that was encouraging them about church truth and and teaching them how the the multicultural assembly that they were now part of with Jews and Gentiles and Greek speakers and Hebrew speakers and just numerous other backgrounds, that now they are all one in Christ because that wall that, that separated them had been broken down by Christ. And so Paul wrote to them, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, you're fellow citizens. We've read in First and Second Timothy how Timothy was sent to Ephesus in order to identify and ordain elders in the assembly and how to encourage them to teach biblically. The apostle John came to minister in Ephesus and we're reading through First John and the letter that he writes to them is very much focused on that assembly. And now in, in Revelation, he's exiled about 50 to 60 miles in the Aegean Sea off the coast of Ephesus on this island of Patmos. If you're familiar with the New Testament at all, then Ephesus is a church that you know as well as you know any church. And yet all the things that I just listed happened within the course of about 40 years. Paul came preaching the gospel. It was probably about 54 A.D., And now John is sending them this message from Jesus in about 95 AD. So 40 years have passed. We think, well, 40 years isn't long enough for things to have gone too wrong, right? And certainly that's how it seems from the way the message begins because the message begins with Christ commending the church. Look at verses one through three. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write, this These things says he that holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and have borne and have patience and for my name's sake have labored and have not fainted. 
The message begins with a description of Jesus, and it's a description of his care and concern for this church. He, he holds the messengers of the churches. He's walking among those lampstands which symbolize his churches. He's not distant. He's not indifferent to them. The Lord loves his church. He's, he's with us, right? He's not aloof and uncaring. He's He's close and he's compassionate. He's, he's there with us. He's the author and sustainer of our faith. He is not just with us sometimes. He is with us all times. And verse 2 transfers from where Christ is to what Christ knows. Because he is with his church and he's close to us and he looks at us, he knows everything about his churches. He is God after all. Omniscience, all-knowing is part of his attributes. And so he says in verse 2, I know your works. The word for works there in verse 2, the first words there, is sort of a generic term. It's not something specific that they've done. It's a, it's a category into which everything else in verses 2 and 3 fall into. I know your works, Jesus says. And then to prove that he knows their works, he lists out those works. He says he knows their labor. This word's more specific. It means to, to toil. It means to work to the point of being drenched with sweat and exhausted from effort. Right? There's nothing quite as satisfying as spending all of your physical and emotional strength and then having been exhausted from the effort, seeing that it was a job well done. I like John MacArthur's description here. He says, the Ephesians were diligent workers for the cause of Christ. Theirs was no spectator mentality. They did not want merely to be entertained, nor were they content to eat the fruit of others' labor. But they were willing to plow, plant, and harvest their own crop in the midst of a pagan darkness that surrounded them. They were aggressively evangelizing the lost, edifying the saints, and caring for those in need. Right? They were working hard, and all of their hard work was not lost on Jesus. So listen to me, if you, if you ever wonder if the Lord knows what you've done and what you've endured for his namesake, he says right here that he does. He, he knows our work. He also knows their patience, he says in verse 2. The word patience is the Greek word hupomone, and it carries the idea of patient endurance or, or being steadfast. Remember, the city of Ephesus, even as this church existed there, the city of Ephesus was still a, a destination point for all the pagan worship of the goddess Diana. Hundreds of temples to Diana or Artemis, depending on whether you're looking at it from the Greek perspective or the Roman perspective. They found hundreds of, of temples to Diana, but the one in Ephesus is the one that's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And for the church to remain in Ephesus, they're going to face levels of resistance which we can hardly imagine as they were slandered and disparaged throughout the city. And yet that's what this church was willing to do. They, did, they, they weren't embarrassed to embrace Jesus. They didn't embrace Jesus because it was easy. They they experienced a Christianity that was far from easy. And Jesus says, I know your patience. I know your, your steadfast endurance. 
He knows that they refuse to compromise. Jesus says one of their works is that you cannot bear them which are evil. They will not tolerate wicked people. The word bear literally means to to carry. They would not carry along with wickedness. Immorality was not something that they would overlook and ignore. Doubtless this was true both within the assembly and outside the assembly. Those two things really, they directly relate to each other. It is inconsistent to speak about and to identify the immorality in the world around us, telling those people that they need to abandon their sin and cling to Christ. And then within the assembly of believers, continue to carry those who apparently have abandoned Christ and have embraced immorality. The church at Ephesus would have none of that, and Jesus commends them for it. Jesus also commends them for their discernment. The end of verse 2, Jesus tells them, You have tried them, which say they are apostles and are not, and you found them liars. So in addition to being wisely intolerant of wicked behavior, the church at Ephesus was also wisely intolerant of wicked teaching. In his final visit to the church at Ephesus, if you remember back in Acts Chapter 20, Paul met with them and he warned them. And he said this, Take heed unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the flock of God, which he's purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after I depart, grievous wolves will enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves, men shall arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. What the apostle Paul preached to them, the apostle John wrote to them about. In our study in 1 John, we've seen that there were these false teachers that had been warned about. They would deny the full glory of Jesus and draw people away from the gospel, right? John said in 1 John, I'm, I'm writing concerning those who seduce you. I'm writing concerning those who draw you away. Now, to their credit, the church at Ephesus appears to have heeded this call. As others rose up, Jesus says, saying that they're apostles, saying that they are ones who sent. Jesus says, this church has heard them and tried them, right? Tested them against the apostolic teaching of Jesus and found them to be false apostles. He says, you found them to be liars. Later on in verse six, Jesus even specifies a particular false doctrine which had been promoted among Christians, but had been rejected by the church at Ephesus. In verse 6, But this you have, that you hate the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which thing I also hate. What's meant by the deeds of the Nicolaitans is a kind of rabbit hole we could disappear down for a while. But let me give you the three most likely possibilities and then tell you what I think for, for what that's worth. The first possibility and, and what I was always taught is that this is describing sort of the opening moves of Roman Catholicism. And the way you come to this is to understand that word Nicolaitans is a, is a 
compound Greek word and you break it into its individual parts, nikos, which means victory or conquer, and laity means the people. And so it's a word that if you break it down means to conquer the people. So the beginning of a church hierarchy is being described here that's controlling over people, church leaders who would ignore congregational rule. There are a couple of problems with that view, though. The most obvious one is the way that John wrote the word. It begins with the capital new, a capital N, right? This is a proper name of some kind. So another possibility is that there is a similarity between the word Nicolaitan in the New Testament and the word Balaam from the Old Testament. If you remember Balaam from the Old Testament, his name meant destroyer of the people, and Nicolaitan means the conqueror of the people. Balaam, if you remember from Numbers, attempted to curse Israel, and when, when God wouldn't allow it, he, he churned into having Israel curse themselves through encouraging sexual immorality. You can glance down to the message of the church at Pergamos in verse 14, and it refers to the doctrine of Balaam, along with idolatry and sexual immorality. The problem is, then that letter also goes on in the next verse to describe the doctrine of the Nicolaitans as something different. So I don't think this is the right answer. The third possibility, and the one that I lean toward at this point, is to listen to what the earliest church writers have to say, that the Nicolaitans were following a man named uh, Nicholas, who appears to have rejected the faith or the Nicolaitans at the very least misrepresented his teaching. Clement of Alexandria in early church history describes these people and says that they taught that they were abandoning themselves to pleasure like goats as if insulting the body. They led a life of self-indulgence. So the idea is that they espoused lawlessness Sin so that grace could abound. Jesus says you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And I also hate that. To hate what Jesus hates is a sure sign that you're on the right track. And we still have that issue today. There are people who say, well, you know, if, if, if it's true that once you're saved, you're always saved, then you can do whatever you want to do. And let me assure you, the Lord hates that thinking. He has saved us from the power of sin, that we would no longer live in it. And if we do wallow in sin, what John tells us in his letter is that's a sure indication you were never saved to begin with. So the church at Ephesus is commended by Christ for rejecting the sort of lawless attitudes of those who would presume upon God's grace. As Jesus commends this church at Ephesus in verse 3. He uses many of the same words again. You've born, right? You've carried the weight of being a Christian. You have patience. You have that steadfast endurance. You've labored, not just in the toils of this world, but Jesus says in verse 3, for my name's sake. He says you haven't fainted. You've not grown weary. The church at Ephesus was made up of faithful workers who remained steadfast to the calling of the Lord Jesus Christ, working for his name's sake. The church here is described as a bastion of faith. It is, it is a stronghold of obedience. 
And we would expect that, right? I mean, we know this church at Ephesus. They were founded on the gospel. They were started by the apostle Paul. The pastors of this church would include Timothy and the apostle John. They're the direct recipients of, of at least eight of the New Testament letters. The church at Ephesus, they don't have to be straightened out on their behavior like the church at Corinth was. They didn't have to be scolded about abandoning the gospel like the church at Galatia. They uphold the gospel steadfastly. They take their lifestyle seriously. If you give them a problem, they'll solve it. If you hand them a, a spiritual final exam, that church is going to be able to, to, to ace it. Of all the churches in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus is the one that we would look to for an example. And of all the churches in the New Testament, the church at Ephesus is the only one to which Jesus openly says, if you don't change, I'm done with you. Because while Jesus commends them for what they believe and how hard they work, he also confronts them about where their heart is in the process. Listen, as Jesus confronts the church, if you can imagine this, at some point, when this scroll from the Apostle John is carried into the church, this church that thinks, oh, you know, we've, we've got it all right, the messenger of the church stands up and he starts reading this scroll out loud and he's reading the, the praises of Jesus and then I imagine he had to take a, a pretty deep breath when he got to verse four. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto you quickly and remove your candlestick out of his place except you repent. These heartbreaking and somber words from our Savior would have served as a, a wake-up call to the church at Ephesus. I'm guessing there were probably only a few people in the congregation who had the spiritual insight to expect that this kind of devastating prospect could be on the horizon. Jesus, who holds the messengers of his churches in his hand, who, who walks among them in communion with them, also loves them enough to be honest with them. And he says, you've left your first love. And if you don't repent as an assembly and go back to the way you were before, we're done. Jesus says it's because you've left your first love. Not, not that they lost their first love, a statement which would assign no particular blame, but they've left it, he says. They've, they've abandoned it. What or who is this love that he's talking about? Well, this is where I give you all the Greek words and their meanings that solves the problem, right? Except... The Greek doesn't solve the problem. It's even maybe more vague, suggesting something like, you've lost the way you loved at first. So it might mean that this assembly no longer loved Christ as ardently as they once did. It could mean in light of John's letters that they didn't love each other the way that they used to. Perhaps it's meant to confront their their failure to evangelize, right? They lacked a love for the lost. Personally, I tend to think that maybe it is just as vague as Jesus means for it to be. 
He is, after all, the one who summed up the entirety of the Old Testament commandments by saying that those commands are as simple as love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that the primary calling of God's righteousness? Isn't love what the Apostle Paul wrote about so eloquently in 1 Corinthians 13 to say that without it, everything else was meaningless? In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wrote, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor and surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So so no matter how you talk, if you talk without love, no matter how much you know, if you know it without love, no matter what great things you do, if you do it without love, it's entirely meaningless. Without love, words are just noise. Without love, wise men are nothing. Without love, the greatest sacrifice is worthless. And now Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus and he says, I know you. I know your moral behavior, I know your hard work, I know your doctrinal purity, but I know that you're doing all of those right things for the wrong reasons. And because you've left the love you had at first, you are dangerously close to me leaving you. If, the, if this read to the angel of the church at Beverly Manor right? Would the message be much different than this? Would Jesus say, I know your hard work and I know your moral behavior and I know your doctrinal purity. I know all the ways that you labor week after week and year after year, but I know sometime over the course of those years, the labor stopped being about me. Can we really honestly go through Right, our, our Christian choreography of our, our weekly routine and say that we do all the things that we do because all those things are an expression of our love for Jesus. Listen, it's vital that you be able to answer that honestly because the Lord has warned here, you can do all the right things, but if you do it outside of love for me, very soon I'll honor that desire that you have And I'm not going to show that love for you either. I'll leave you on your own. How many warnings should a church expect? Well, he says in verse five, I will come to you quickly and remove your candlestick out of his place except you repent. The swiftness of a church losing its unity with Jesus is matched only by the finality of losing that. So he begins in verse one saying he's the one who walks among the lampstands. He's in communion with his churches. And now he comes back to that and warns them, look, your lampstand could be removed. That is the equivalent of being unchurched in the eyes of Jesus, no longer recognized as his assembly. Now we don't know if this ultimately happened. 
We know the, the church at Ephesus is no longer there today, right? We can't go to Ephesus and, and attend this assembly. But we don't know whether it was unchurched by Jesus or whether it listened to this and remained faithful and was ultimately overrun by the coming persecution. But let me ask you, just for the sake of argument, if Jesus did do what he threatens here, if he removed their candlestick, if he unchurched them, what did it look like? Did they, would they have known that it happened? Would people on the outside have known that it happened? How do you know the moment that a church full of morally upright, hardworking, doctrinally pure, but passionless people, how do you know that moment that they stop being the Lord's church and just become a community club? Wouldn't they still the next week have looked like a group of morally upright, hardworking, doctrinally pure people persisting in their weekly displays of passionless praise? A church is in danger when, it's more, when, it, when it thinks that its moral uprightness and doctrinal purity is somehow an adequate foundation for the future. A church can lose its influence and lose its witness long before it loses its existence. Without love, that church can die without knowing that it's dead. If we can see ourselves in the mirror of this congregation, even if you can only see it a little bit, then you have to know that we need a dramatic change. Thankfully, that's not all the text has to say to us. Christ commends the church and he confronts the church and then Christ conforms the church because verse five isn't simply a threat. It's also a roadmap to recovery. Remember, therefore, from where you were fallen and repent and do your first works or else I will come unto you quickly and remove your candlestick out of his place except you repent. He calls in them to remember. Right? Look, spouses do this from time to time when, when marriage seems to have gotten routine, right? They'll look at each other. Do you remember how it used to be? Remember how much we, we loved each other? That's Jesus' call here. Remember. Specifically, he says, remember from where you were fallen. The people in this church at Ephesus could surely have looked around and said, yeah, it was not always like this. Remember back to when that fire started to fade and, and fan the ember until it burns bright again. Compare where you are now to where you once were when your love for Jesus and, and showing your love by serving him in his assembly was your all-consuming passion. Repent, literally having a changed mind. Go back to what it was. Do your first works, Jesus said. Go back to when serving the Lord wasn't just going through the motions. It wasn't just a religious routine. It was your joy. Verse seven is part of this roadmap as well. In verse seven, it contains a command to listen and a promise of blessing. He says, he that has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The command to be obeyed is hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Remember who I noted earlier that's part of each one of these seven messages, right? It isn't just a, a message for Ephesus. It's a message for us. It's a message from the Lord. If you're listening to this, if you're listening to this this morning and you're thinking, well, Pastor Jason sir seems emotional about this, then understand you are listening to the entirely wrong voice. You need to hear what the Holy Spirit through his word has to say to the churches. It's a message that is unfortunately easy to ignore. I don't think that's us. Our situation isn't nearly as bad as all that. You can turn a deaf ear to the message of Jesus or you can listen to what he has to say to his churches. But I would say it would make sense for us to to want to learn from what he said to Ephesus as opposed to experiencing the threat that he makes to Ephesus. The blessed promise is to him that overcomes, literally to he that achieves victory. I will give to eat of the tree of life in the midst of the paradise of God. The last time we saw the tree of life, it was in the garden of Eden. And because of sin, access was denied to us. But through Christ, paradise lost becomes paradise found. Do we not love him for that? Have we become comfortable with week after week of passionless routine that we would rather do that than the prospect of upholding him with unrestrained love. This is Christ's assessment of the church at Ephesus. But of course, a church is an assembly and you don't have an assembly without love unless it's made up of individuals without love. And so the question for each one of us today is, have you lost your first love? You know, when... When a young couple takes the first steps into sort of the adoration and devotion that's going to ultimately become love, you know, you've seen that happen with a young couple. You've observed it. You've experienced it perhaps with yourself. They're consumed with each other, right? That's who I think about. That's who I talk about. That's who I want to be around. Is Jesus who you think about? Is Jesus who you talk about? Is Jesus who you want to be around? Or has your heart found some new object for love? And you come here going through passionless praise, confident all the time that you are morally upright, hardworking, and doctrinally pure, so that that's going to be enough. No doubt we could be like Ephesus. We can work hard and live right and uphold doctrinal truth. But as we do each of those things, as we go through the routines of worship and service, can we honestly say that we do all of those right things for the right reasons? Is everything that we do an expression of our love for the Lord Jesus? It's a question that that each of us needs to answer.